Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on technology and entrepreneurship. Today's episode is a very different episode because it's our one-year anniversary. It's important in life occasionally to take stock and think about what you've achieved. In the modern world, there is so much emphasis on moving forward, tackling the next challenge. But it is, I find, incredibly important to take stock and appreciate what you've done. You don't hear too much from me in this podcast. I like to get the guests on to take centre stage and steer a conversation around the industry that they're operating in and where they see the future of their sector, but also of the workforce going. But we have been getting quite a bit of feedback saying that you wanted to know more about my story. The team that worked with me on pulling this podcast together have been pushing me to do that as well. And well, look, I've got a background in politics, so I love the sound of my own voice. And so I didn't take an enormous amount of persuading to do this. Let's face it, I'm not big enough to get on how I built this with Guy Raz yet. So I thought we'd cover a few different things in this podcast. The origins of where it started, how we've grown it to be a number one charting podcast, the thoughts on the future of podcasting and audio as a whole, and what is next for Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The first ever podcast I listened to was George Osborne on Matt Ford's political party back in Christmas 2018. Now, despite the fact that George Osborne absolutely tore into my boss at the time, I was struck by how engaging the audio format was. And Matt was and is a brilliant host at just gently steering the conversation. A few months later, we'd moved house and I was having to unpack a load of boxes. So rather than watch the Champions League, I had it on radio listening to Barcelona versus Liverpool. It was a famous semi-final where nobody really gave Liverpool a chance, having been 3-0 down from the first leg. Famously, they went on to win 4-3 overall. And when the full-time whistle went, the commentator fell silent and the atmosphere of the cop singing You'll Never Walk Alone just blared out. And I remember thinking at that point how immersive audio could be. Later that summer, I departed number 10 with the best wishes of the new Prime Minister as I left to start a family. The job in number 10 for someone who was passionate about politics and entrepreneurship was an absolutely amazing experience, but it was all-encompassing. I remember sitting on a beach on our honeymoon, drafting some London Tech Week notes that I thought the Prime Minister should say a few weeks later. The week before my wedding, I had been in Africa for the infamous Theresa May dancing routines. Although she did quip to me afterwards, some good tips for your first dance, Jimmy. And boy, did I need them. So when the new PM came in and asked me to stay, I agreed to do a transitional period because the way our politics works when one PM leaves and the other arrives isn't necessarily conducive to the best running of the country with lots of special advisors leaving. Ultimately, it was time for me to go off on a new adventure and become a first-time dad. Friends would remark that it was possible that I was the only person three weeks after having a child to look significantly better than the three or four weeks beforehand. When it came to what next was in my career, 
After a few high octane years, I just thought I needed a bit of headspace and I'd be able to work it out. I was in the fortunate position of having been a business advisor to have lots of people to go and see and get their advice. I realized looking back how disorganized I was in this approach. Throughout the period of getting some advice, I decided that it was time for another new adventure and to go and study at Stanford University out in California for a couple of months. There was this coronavirus thing that was in the media a bit. And at the final pitch day, we had agreed not to shake hands with anyone, but it still felt a bit of a blip on the radar. We finished the course at Stanford and my wife's agreement for going to California with a four-month-old was that we would have to go camping in Yosemite at the end of it. Now, RVs and camping is not my idea of a great time. Perhaps I was too scarred by Duke of Edinburgh growing up and too many wet tents in the Derbyshire Hills in the Peak District. But we had an amazing time, no Wi-Fi, the three of us just sleeping under the stars of Yosemite as it became more and more deserted. When we did get Wi-Fi and signal from this trip, we realised it had been quite a big week and coronavirus was no longer a blip on people's radars. First notification that popped up on my phone was Donald Trump has cancelled all flights back to the European Union. I won't say the exact words because I like to think of this as a family show, but it was along the lines of, thank God for Brexit. We got back to the UK on the very last flight. When we got home, we went to go and do a big shop and the shelves were empty. It was at that moment the reality began to set in. Over the next few days, my wife decided that she would give up maternity leave and head back to the front line. We were all well aware that she could be returning to the war zone-like scenes that we had been seeing in Italy. On the day she left, I remember the door closing and turning to look at my baby daughter and saying out loud, yeah, I'm not sure who is more nervous about this either. It sometimes feels odd to remember how bleak things seemed at one point. All you were allowed to do was go to the park. You weren't allowed to sit down in the park. All you could do was walk. You couldn't see friends, neighbours or family. What exactly were we going to fill 12 hours a day with? As all good parents try to, I didn't want to be on my screen too much in front of her. Coupled with the fact as well at the time, it was the ultimate doom scrolling. So we started listening to radio. My daughter became used to us having mealtimes around BBC Radio 4's flagship shows. Weetabix with Nick Robinson and Michelle Hussein on the Today programme. Jacket Potato, Cheese and Beans with Martha Carney on The World at One. And a Spag Bowl pouch with Evan Davis with PM. And yes, they happen to be three of my favourite meals too. Occasionally, I'd sit there and think, boy, this is a long way from the master of the universe style life flying around the world with the PM on RAF Voyager. Genuinely, I'd gone from being able to lay claim to being one of the most in-demand people to an absolute power vacuum. I'd gone from Downing Street to diapers. Where did I have to deal with more tantrums? I'll let you be the judge. I sat there and realised that six-month-olds do sleep quite a lot. So I started an email newsletter informing businesses about where to go in government to get the information that they required, knowing how hard government can be to navigate, even when you've worked in it for three years. 
the email list grew pretty quickly, but I am dyslexic and I found writing it quite hard and stressful at times. And then when consuming all of this audio, I thought, is there a way that I could do a podcast myself? And this is where the origins of the podcast really began to take hold. It's often talked with entrepreneurs about light bulb moments, but I often think it's almost like one of those old flickering lights that flashes a few times before it comes on properly. With the surge of unemployment coming up, was there something that I could do on a bigger scale? I dropped a few notes to friends. Was this a good idea? Would they appear on the new show? Careers counsel for the masses. It was grandly entitled at one stage, taking some of my ideas from Stanford. Positive responses came back from Catherine Parsons and Pip Jamieson. Well, not wholly positive. You'd be great at this. This is a superb idea, but it is a terrible name. I've forgotten the name already and you only mentioned it three minutes ago. That's how forgettable it is, said Pip. And so that's where I began to play around with the idea of alliteration and Jimmy's jobs. So this leads me on to the how I built this section. When I finished a park run the other day, a friend introduced me to one of their friends. And after chatting for a couple of minutes, they said, so what is it you do then? And I replied with, well, I'm a podcaster. To which they responded, ah, everyone has a podcast nowadays. Now I got the sentiment that that person was trying to get across and have definitely thought myself that at times. However, it did make me think, well, we all have ideas and it's acting upon them and making them happen, which is the key difference. And I thought back to when I had the first initial ideas and then I, all the questions came streaming back that I had no idea about. How do you record? What do you record with? What happens if it doesn't record? Who are going to be the guests? What order will we have them on? Will anyone say yes to coming on? What am I going to ask them? How do you promote it? Where's the best place to do this? Do I need a producer? What does a producer actually do? Do I need an editor? What does an editor actually do? Do we have an introduction? Do we have an outro? What is an outro? Will we have music? Will we have stings? What is a sting? Where do we get the artwork from? A lot of the questions from the above I got from Googling and Dan Murray's Surtur's excellent guys to creating a podcast. And I did decide to spend a bit of money on editing a team and some artwork design. The rest, I kind of figured I could work out myself. But finally, of course, perhaps the biggest question was, would anyone listen? And even more vainly, would they listen and think it was any good? I'd gone from being a special advisor in Downing Street, which is covered in mystique and aura. And here I was actually going to come out from those shadows and say what I think. I'd gone from one of the most powerful rooms in the country to my bedroom, sometimes cradling my baby daughter, feeding her milk whilst doing podcast interviews. It was different. It was, on reflection, a much bigger mentality shift than I had anticipated. And whilst listens and charting are vanity metrics, I was making some busy people give up time, so I felt a sense of responsibility to deliver to them too. So I just set myself up for a pilot, could always back out then at the end of eight episodes. I didn't know what success would look like, but quite quickly we got some traction. Beyond that of the family and the neighbours that I bugged to listen to it, 
Now on to the title of this episode, Building a Number One Charting Podcast. Well, in our first week, we got into the top 20. 111 countries in the world now listen to this podcast. But whilst I chased charts at the beginning and sometimes introed the show about them, I have slowly realized that they are a vanity metric. Deliberately, the charts are updated on almost an hourly basis to give you that dopamine hit. But we're all vain from time to time. And it makes a big difference when we are approaching partners or responding to people at park runs to say, well, look, we do rank number one in careers and in the top 10 in business. But what really matters is the relationships, the listeners and the content we are creating. At this point, I'd like to say a big thank you to Ben Francis, Noel Mack and Lily Taylor at Gymshark. I was fortunate enough to get them on the show, but perhaps even more fortunate that they pushed it out to their 1 million plus combined social followers, which made a real difference at the beginning of season three and what took us to number one in the charts. What is particularly endearing is that we have kept three quarters of those listeners are coming back on a regular basis to the show which also demonstrates how much they listen to what Ben and Noel are saying. And that's what really matters, is a deep audience. You, the listener, are choosing to spend 45 minutes of your week with us, and that means a great deal. The lovely messages we get from you about the new jobs and the things that you have taken on, having got inspiration from some of these shows. Most of the guests that we have had on, particularly in the early days, are people I had known. And it has deepened friendships and relationships with all of them, which is one of the side effects that I hadn't really anticipated when I set out. Another side effect is that now some family and friends perhaps begin to understand what I was doing at number 10. Even my dad commented to me, I listened at the start out of duty, but I actually think it's really good. So a big thank you to all the guests who've come on the show and share it with their teams and networks. But an even bigger thank you to you, the listener. And that is where most of our growth comes from. It's the word of mouth and the people-to-people recommendation of this is something that you should try. If you're thinking of doing that, perhaps recommend a single episode to a friend or to a WhatsApp group because that often makes a real difference. So partway through the pilot series, I thought, crikey, we have really got something here and I'm actually building something that people want. But it began to dawn on me that creating something that people want takes quite a lot of work and I was going to need some help. By this stage, my daughter was in nursery and I thought I've actually got to make a living. Not that I'm tracking my daughter's upbringing via the podcast, although she basically did walk on the day that the Pete Flint episode was published. In my journey of trying to make it sustainable, I started to ask a lot of people to support the show. And would they come on board as partners or sponsors? And perhaps in a typical entrepreneur fashion that we've heard so many times on the podcast, I got a lot of no's. Lots of encouragement, but lots of no's. Until I met up with Chris Hewlett from Octopus. He, like most of the people, was supportive of the idea. But he also said, I'm willing to back you to build on this. And that's where Octopus comes in. 
Since partnering with them, I've gotten to understand them much better and have an even deeper appreciation for what they have achieved. They are a British success story. And perhaps even more British, they sometimes don't shout about it as much as they could do. Something that does not trouble our North American cousins so much. They are passionate about Britain and entrepreneurs that are rebuilding the UK economy. Whilst they make this podcast financially possible, it is also what they stand for and how our missions align. Their strapline of investing in the people, ideas and companies that will change the world is something that I firmly believe in as well. Research, planning, organising, editing and promoting these episodes takes a fair amount of work. None of those are particularly in my skill sets. And so most of that is now done by Leo, who joined us earlier in the year. He started out as a researcher, but now actively produces the show and keeps it all going smoothly and keeps yours truly aligned to a decent schedule. And I warn you, Leo, that I will be listening to a whole of this episode back, so don't try and cut this bit. There are lots of podcasts out there, particularly given the last year. It's good ingredients to be interesting and to know interesting people. But that does not necessarily match up to make an interesting podcast. It is not that simple. That is perhaps 70 to 80% of the ingredients you need, but it's that last 20% of preparation and execution and distribution that makes the real effort. And that is where Leo has been so crucial in upscaling our professional ability, which also was a big difference in how we actually managed to get to number one in the charts. You're asking somebody to give up 45 minutes of their time each week you have to respect the audience and deliver them something that is worth that time on a consistent basis. And so that leads me into some thoughts on the future of the industry. Podcasting at the moment is very much in the zeitgeist. I told someone at a wedding recently that I was a podcaster and they became very animated and excited about it. And I did wonder if they would have had that reaction had I said that I was a local radio host, which is in effect almost what I am, perhaps a global local radio host. Podcasting reminds me a bit of blogging in the mid-noughties. Every corporate and individual was creating a blog, but populating a blog and creating that content is far harder than it looks, particularly to do so on a consistent basis. It has been interesting of those people that I approached at the beginning to partner on the show, the most common response was, well, we're actually going to go and do our own podcast. And what has been fascinating about the last few months, particularly, is the amount of those people coming back and reaching out to see if there's some way of partnering in the future. Because actually creating corporate XYZ podcast isn't probably going to be something that is necessarily listened to by lots of people because fundamentally it ends up being pretty dull and vanilla. So what's next for Jimmy's jobs? Well, firstly, I've spoken for 20 minutes and I still haven't told you much of what I actually think or believe. So I thought I would share with you my ideological foundations, moral compass, core principles, all these buzzwords 
This is what I think this podcast is about. Fundamentally, it's my belief that there has never been a better day to be alive than today, and tomorrow will be even better. The world has more options than it has ever had before, and that is incredibly exciting. I believe entrepreneurs are almost like modern-day explorers, charting new seas and finding new continents. However, if you don't have the knowledge or don't know where to go, the world seems a lot harder and can almost feel overwhelming. Social media typifying this can make everyone feel like that everyone else is absolutely smashing it. But the truth is talent is spread evenly. Opportunity is not. How do we find and encourage more people to start and grow businesses to the size of Gymshark, for example, or Starling Bank? And that's what we're trying to change in this podcast. Not everyone has the appetite for risk or the ability to be a founder, but the world continues to become more entrepreneurial and understanding their stories and the jobs they are creating, I think is paramount to understanding how the world works. With this podcast, I hope in our own small way, we are tackling some of these problems by sharing inspiring stories about people who have done amazing things as a job and a career. It's my view that if you want to increase someone's opportunity and therefore social mobility, there are four key ingredients that this podcast attempts to combine. Social capital with contacts and knowledge and accessibility lead to opportunity and social mobility. Some of those things are quite hard to define and mean different things to different people. My definition of accessibility is trying to make it light-hearted, down-to-earth, and so people can understand. As is so often the case, people don't necessarily remember what you told them, but they sure remember how you made them feel. I think that we're going through a modern-day renaissance, an explosion in content that is similar to the printing presses. We've also got paradigm leaps in health advances, migration flows that have been large in the last few years but are only likely to increase. Even the explosions in digital artwork, non-fungible tokens, is similar to what happened in the first Renaissance. By the way, we'll be exploring NFTs in an upcoming episode. The challenge, though, is like the first Renaissance. Whilst the world will be better off at the end of this, the disruption and the dislocation whilst going through these things is huge and disproportionately benefits others. Podcasting has become my passion, not something I could have imagined myself saying 15 months ago. I feel as though it's a powerful medium to communicate through and I think it's highly likely that I'll still be doing this in 30 years time in the 2050s. It is what I spend a good chunk of my time doing alongside advising entrepreneurs and some angel investing. We now have three people the work on bringing each show together, and it will always be embedded in entrepreneurialism and creativity. However, given the recent success of the Chief of Staff episode, we are going to be exploring specific jobs even more, such as product managers, what is an influencer, and what gives them credibility. Also, other interesting jobs, such as what does a football chairman do, and what does an academy director do at a football club. You make this show what it is and therefore we want to hear from you so to be explicit we are exploring different concepts for the fourth fifth and sixth series of jimmy's jobs of the future and we'd love to hear from you about what you like 
what you think we can improve on. We want to take production to the next level whilst looking at how we fund this stuff for the long term too. So if you have 20 minutes to answer some questions, we would be very grateful to hear from you. Just email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. And finally, if you do enjoy this and you get some value from it, please do rate us. It's so important for the small algorithms and search features the podcast do have. We have a lot more listeners than we do ratings. I'm coy about this sort of thing because I'm British, but it does make a big difference to discovery. Ultimately, the aim of this show is for it to go further and faster. And I really appreciate how much you have shared it beyond what you have already done. So make sure you hit subscribe and recommend it to a friend or family member. Thanks very much for listening.